Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Kirk Thatcher, writer, producer, director, production designer, who started his career as the youngest person in the Return of the Jedi Creature Shop. Come for the stories of working with Phil Tippett, Jim Henson, David Fincher, and then stay for the very insightful discussion on the future of the Muppets in Star Wars. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 93, Kirk Thatcher. With you, it is like the very start of your career. And why I love your story so much is, you know, you are the youngest person working in the Phil Tippett Creature Shop for Return of the Jedi. And I would love to even just go back before then and and what inspired you growing up and what made you even want to get into movies like that. Yeah, I mean, it was probably two things, at least Disneyland and King Kong, (laughs) The, the movie King Kong on TV when I was a kid and Ray Harryhausen movie. So so fantasy, you know, uh, sci-fi fantasy films just kind of blew my mind. I, I love science fiction and I like to draw. So all that combined, plus Disneyland and finding out at an early age, probably eight to 10, that you could be an Imagineer kind mm-hmm. of blew my mind. And I would design theme park rides in my head. I would draw like maps of them. So it all kind of worked together in the arts and entertainment. And again, I had... I wasn't particularly good. I just was driven to draw a lot and paint and just be creative. And my family, I was the only one. I mean, I think I had one cousin who took pottery in college. (laughs) So my, my mom, thankfully was a school teacher. So she at least saw that I had a passion for it and supported it. Cause my dad was a, you know, ex-military lawyer. I mean, great guy, but just super, I guess you say left brain, just very, you know, uh, kind of a reductionist in terms of the way the world is. And, and art was, he told me artists were bums because uh, the only artist he had ever experienced was in World War II, the guy sitting along the, the River Seine in Paris where he had been stationed for like two years uh, at the end of the war and through like the, the first year of trying to rebuild the uh, French government. He was a U.S. lawyer. He was a military guy, but also a lawyer. So they kept him there to help make sure that the uh, French government went back to a democracy. But uh, the only artists he saw were guys, you know, smoking Jatan cigarettes and dirty, smelly clothes, <laughs> you know, like right. their five dollar painting of the or five franc painting of the Eiffel Tower. So he just didn't get it. But my mom was supportive. And then Star Wars. And so, you know, uh, Alien, uh, all, all these movies that had come out. But Star Wars, it's funny. I, I read a magazine called Cinefantastique, which was one of the right. few, if not only. It was there's famous monster Cinefantastique. I don't even think Fangoria existed at this point. Um, Starlog. So I read those magazines and some fantastic had covered this movie and they had a couple pictures, just black and white photos in, in their kind of upcoming films thing, very not heavily promoted thing about the, the Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. And it was just called the Star Wars and they didn't know much about it, but they had these couple pictures. And then I was at like Safeway or something with my mom and saw a paperback said Star Wars, you know, by George <laughs> Lucas. And it had, you know, a cover of the painting was by Ralph McQuarrie. And so I bought it and you know, with my allowance and it was like, you know, back then, I think there were three bucks. So I bought the paperback and read it. I remember the scene in the uh, cantina, which is like, you know, chapter two or three in the book mm-hmm. blew my mind. I'm like, they're making a movie with this scene in it, you know, <laughs> describes all the aliens. I'm like, this has got to be amazing. So I was there day one. I was there at Grauman's Chinese at the 12 a.m. screen, the 12, the 12 noon screening of uh, 
Star Wars wow. with a couple friends. We played hooky from school. My mom's thought it, it was okay. It was we were I think ninth grade, so and it was near the end of the year. You know, I think all the finals have been done, so we just ditched school and went and saw it. And my mom was there chaperoning because I was only fourteen or fifteen. And, uh, you know, it just blew our minds and the audience went, my mom said I had never, and, you know, she was not sci-fi or anything. She liked mystery movies. Um, and she came out going, that was an amazing film. She was, I'd never been in where the audience applauded at the opening (laughs) of the movie and then stood and applauded at the end of the movie. Um, so that really kind of solidified what I wanted to do and what I wanted to work on, which was star Wars and movies like star Wars. And this was just the luck of fate. I, I lived in Van Nuys. I grew up in Van Nuys, which is where ILM was. Right. I literally could ride my bike to ILM. It would take me about 25 minutes on my bike. Uh-huh. I was right, almost right down the street from it. I mean, you know, I'm talking like three miles away. But so my mom came home that summer. So it came out in May. So I think like two months later, my mom came home from church on a Sunday. I was kind of not going regularly at that point because I was 15. And I thought it was, well, I didn't think I was cool. I just, you know, I think they gave me a pass. But she came back and said, hey, I met a woman at church whose son worked on Star Wars. And I'm like, what's his name? What's her name? What's her, name? <laughs> her last name is Johnston. And I'm like, wait, is it Joe Johnston? Because I already had his, his sketchbooks. Uh, right. And um, she's like, yeah, I think that's right. I said, oh, my God, Joe Johnston. And, and she said, yeah. I said, is there any? So, you know, of course, next Sunday I go in a little suit and tie, <laughs> my hair neatly combed. And I'm like, right. Good afternoon, Mrs. Johnston. It is very nice to meet you. Is there any chance in the world that I could meet your son, Joe? And so short and long story short, if it's not too late for that, uh, she gave me his number. I called him up. I said, hey, I would love to meet you. And, you know, Star Wars blew my mind. That yeah. wasn't really unique. Um, he said, sure. He was super, you know, it was funny. He was like, I was 15. I think he was 26. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, he was just as shocked as everybody else that it had kind of blown up. So I got a tour of ILM and he signed my sketchbooks, which I still have. Oh, that's great. And the one, the one, so the, the first one he just signed to Kirk, may the force be with you, Joe Johnson. The second one he wrote to Kirk, are you available for the sequel? <laughs> <laughs> which, which I love because it, well, it skipped. I was available for the third, the second sequel, not the first. Right. Sequel. All right. Uh, yeah, I was, I had just started high school that. So that fall I started high school, 10th grade yeah, because of the schools I went to split it at ninth and 10th. And, uh, and so during those next three years from, from 15 to 18, I uh, kept drawing and, and making movies, which I'd been doing um, on my own anyway, uh, you know, making special effects, doing sculptures and doing creature stuff. I, I, I made models and things, but I really kind of uh, had an affinity for creatures uh, makeup. I, I had met Rick Baker and Craig Reardon at local conventions and they'd both been really kind. Craig, particularly would let me call him on the phone and I'd ask him questions. And, and so, um, and, you know, I think all Craig had done at that point, this is like 78, 79, he'd done something for Galactica. He made the three breasted woman and some alien on that, but, and he was a local guy. He was in the Valley and, and very nice, very knowledgeable graduated high school and went up with some buddies, my brother and my next door neighbors are my best friends. Uh, we drove up to San Francisco to hang out and just do something fun and teenagery in the summer. And one of the things was I called Joe because they had moved up to Rank County. I said, hey, I'm going to be in San Francisco with from friends. Is there any chance we could tour ILM? He said, yeah, sure. So he met us on a Saturday because he's an incredibly nice guy and generous with his time. And we got a tour of ILM. And again, mind blown. I gave him a creature that I'd made for a student film I'd done in my senior year. It's kind of a big fat ogre. Actually very similar to what the uh, 
the Goblin King looked like in in The Hobbit. Just oh yeah, fat, bloated, demony looking thing. <laughs> right. uh, he was supposed to be a lower demon in hell for a movie I made with friends, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. I gave it to him. And you know, because I don't know, I'm like, what a weird thing to do. But <laughs> uh, he said, you know, thanks. And but he put it up in the creature shop. Uh, I found out later. Right. And so I started UCLA, I went to one quarter and I called him up because I, I, I was all excited to be a film major at UCLA. And it turns out you can't even touch a camera till you're a junior. So I was like, mm-hmm. I've been filming stuff since I was 12. Uh, so I called him up and said, Hey, I know you guys, cause they had announced they're starting work on the third star Wars movie. I said, look, I'm not going to be able to touch a camera for two more years. And I've been making stuff and uh, I would love to come work on, you know, whatever this movie is going to be, I'll make coffee, you know, I'll run the Xerox machine. I don't care. I, I really want to be involved. And it was funny. It was one of those moments in your life where you're like, somebody's looking out for me. He said, who told you? I said, who told me what? He said, come on, who told you? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> he said, I, like, I called him on a Tuesday or Wednesday and he said, well, I just put your name on a list for people they should interview for the creature shop. Cause they have your creature hanging on the wall. <laughs> but they they kind of know your work. And, you know, um, I said, you're, wait are you kidding and he's like no how did you know that i said i swear i didn't he said, but i don't know anyone at island except you who would have told me yeah that's weird so uh i got all excited put together a portfolio drove up to ilm and uh had lunch joe said hi but i interviewed with chris Wallace and ken mm-hmm. ross phil tippett was either working he was finishing up dragon slayer but i didn't meet phil at that point i met chris and ken and they very humorously, to my mind at that point, talk, tried to talk me out of it. They said, are you kidding? You're, you could go to UCLA and study study film. Your parents would pay for you to go. You know, I was like, yeah, but, but I mean, come on, man. I work on Star Wars. They're like, you're an idiot. I mean, literally, like, <laughs> Chris Wallace, one of his favorite you know, quotes is, you're an idiot. And he was, they were just razzing me to the point of like, I mean, I just laughed. I thought they were being funny. It turned out later, they were like, no, we were dead serious. We literally tried to talk you out of it. And we figured, well, if you're too stupid to not be dissuaded, then, you know, join us. Because I had the skills. I, I I knew how to sculpt. And I mean, because they had a creature there that I'd done, they knew I could sculpt, mold, cast, paint, and, you know, finish a, a creature. And so what happened was Chris was actually the guy, uh, Chris Wallace was saying, yeah, sure. He's got, you know, he's got the skills to basically be a grunt in the creature shop. And then he left to start his own place. So Phil sort of inherited me because uh, Chris had put me on the, you know, okay list. So I got a thumbs up. I moved up about a month later. So I always say I got the job at 18, but I started working at 19 because I think literally it was February mm-hmm. when I interviewed and then got the job and moved up in March uh, and then started working on my first thing was to paint the walls of the new creature shop because <laughs> it had been one room upstairs at, at the original ILM at Kerner. And they were just expanding. And so they they leased a building across the back parking lot there. And and it was like three rooms and a huge workspace and two storage rooms and a front office. And so my first job that week was on a scissor lift painting, you know, whatever, 20 foot, 24 foot high ceiling building that had just been drywalled. Like they literally had just finished it. So and then um, I worked in the, the mold shop and the paint shop. I set up the paint shop for Jedi. All the creatures done in Marin, I either... I painted most of them or at least painted the, the, the duplicates very often Phil would paint the, um, the main one, like, you know, like Akbar, the back bar that was on camera that did all mm-hmm. the dialogue, Phil would paint that, but then I would paint all the other ones, all the other Mon Calamari. Right. Uh, and pretty much everything that ran through that shop, I either molded, casted or painted. 
Um, and it was great. And I did some uh, puppeteering on the special. I did Salacious for the Star Wars special. Right. I, I was going to go to London, but I got really sick. I got mono, put me away for two weeks. So Phil, because I just kind of exhausted myself. I, I, you know, I wouldn't go home. I just stay and work. So they went to London, but I got to go to uh, England. Uh, sorry, uh, Yuma, Arizona, for all the desert exterior stuff with Java's Barge, and then to uh, the the Forest Moon of Endor up in Oregon, right. working in Oregon. And so I, I was on location for almost five months uh, on on splitting those both locations. So I had a blast, and just you know, it was in some ways it was like going to war because you're just with a bunch of troops and you're sent to these weird locations and you've got. <laughs> horrible hours but you know like like young impressionable guys except we weren't you know we weren't being killed by any enemies we were just making the movie but i i got to learn filmmaking i said my career's gone downward i started with john the probably the biggest movie shot that year and now i do little three million dollar specials for you know the muppets <laughs> uh, but it was amazing and became friends with phil tippett and you know all these yeah. other guys tony mcveigh and, and and people who who were just amazing uh you know ken ralston and chris wayless and then so worked on Jedi for about a year and a half from pre-production through production and post uh, did blue screen stuff with the Ewoks and mm -hmm. uh, the Rancor at one point, the Rancor was going to be a guy in the suit because George thought we should do it that way. <laughs> and uh, I ended up being the guy in the suit because the, the stunt man they had, they had cast was about five ten, and he just wasn't, it was a big clumsy suit, like very awkward. Right. And um, he just kept falling over in it. So I, I got volunteered. <laughs> uh, so I did some tests. We shot high speed motion tests with it, kind of in a half finished suit. And Phil and Dave Carson were working the hands and the arms. And then I think Phil, you know, between Phil and I, I, I know Phil tested it, but I remember for at least a day, if not two days of shooting with it, but it was very awkward. So ultimately we, and we wanted to prove to George, it wasn't a good idea because he just had very little control. So uh, he ended up being, he was originally going to be a stop motion puppet, which is why it wasn't designed to be a guy in a suit. And then he ended up being a puppet, which a lot of people don't know. He was a hand puppet. He was the size right. of Kermit uh, and shot high speed. And I didn't have, I had gone at that point, I was working with Chris Wayless because um, that's what happened is we finished Jedi and I was there for cleanup and, and some insert shots. Like I said, blue screen stuff with the, the Ewoks. And then uh, I had time off and then Chris Wayless got gremlins. I'd been, doing stuff on the weekends with him, just helping out because his shop was his garage. And then he got gremlins. And so I signed on for that and worked on that for about six, seven months. And mm -hmm. then, uh, <laughs> and then David Fincher and I, who had been pals since Jedi, cause he was the other youngest guy uh, at ILM uh, formed a production company to do rock videos. And mm -hmm. so we did about a year's worth of rock videos with Martha Davis and the motels and uh, Rick Springfield. Right. And I was a production designer uh the one that was most star wars friendly was one called bop to you drop where i designed and wore this weird alien alligator king <laughs> very, <laughs> very geiger influence sort of a vulture meets an alligator uh and was a production designer on that and created the suit and tony mcveigh just uh, sculpted it mm -hmm. and uh, i wore it and that was crazy so uh yeah and then i moved back to la because i realized the computers so while it was all going on uh, pixar was starting up at ilm and uh, I would go over and hang out with the um, Pixar guys. It was like eight people at that point and play around with the paint system. They said, hey, you want to, you know, because I had been taking classes in oil painting. They said, hey, you want to fool around with a, the interface and, and try painting with this? So, you know, I'm like maybe an hour or two uh, over a couple weeks. And um, I realized CG is going to become really important to uh, right. films. 
So I went back to UCLA to study filmmaking, uh, sorry, CG, uh, computer animation, mm -hmm. and just learn the basics. And I would go to SIGGRAPH. And then, uh, well, let's see, I got just, <laughs> I got pulled away to storyboard the entire movie of Cat's Eye. Mm -hmm. uh, I was originally hired to design the creature, but Carla Rimbaldi was building and didn't want to use my design. So the director said, hey, you want to storyboard the movie? Because <laughs> I'd done storyboards. I storyboarded the, the last scene in Gremlins, Gremlins 1, where he melts, yeah. where he, water hits him and he bubbles and melts. I storyboarded some scenes for Chris and that. So I had done boarding. So I boarded all of Cat's Eye. In fact, they named the family. Drew Barrymore's family was the Thatchers, which the production designer did in honor of me storyboarding. <laughs> That's great. Uh, and then I went back to UCLA and then uh, met Leonard Nimoy. They were looking for an assistant for him who knew filmmaking and particularly special effects. And I was right. like, paid for. I just left ILM like a year earlier. So I met Leonard. We hit it off and I started on, on uh, Star Trek Four. And worked on it for about a year and a half from the wow. second, well, from the first draft of the new script, the, uh, not the Mearson Crickets one, but the Harv Bennett, uh, Nick Meyer one. So started there and went all the way through, you know, the rap party. And, and, uh, and then <laughs> six months after that, met Jim Henson. So yeah, the eighties were good. <laughs> were good. To, I went from star Wars to star Trek to Muppets. Yeah. Met Jim Henson became good friends with him, started working with him, moved to New York, worked on, designing characters and gags really in the beginning. Jim, mm -hmm. Jim was one of the few people I've ever worked for that like to have creative like artists around just for ideas. You know, you don't have to write, just draw and brainstorm with them. So I got to, I mean, you know, it was like, I just kept getting these great jobs. Leonard Nimoy was amazing and trusted me with all this stuff. And Jim Henson was like, you know, I think uh, I like your ideas. You want to work with me? I'm like, yeah. And uh, so we became friends and did Jim Henson hour with him and then started designing dinosaurs. I'm compressing a little bit. I, I, I moved back to LA after Jim Henson hour wasn't picked up. I started working on Robocop two with Phil worked on that for about six months and started at Imagineering Disney Imagineering as a freelancer on an upgrade of Tomorrowland and uh, specifically the uh, world of progress, which was came America sings, which they were going to turn into a, a crashed alien uh, circus. And so uh -huh. I was designing all the creatures for oh, it. That's incredible. That oh, was a great job. It never happened. But yeah. uh, while that was happening, uh, they were also developing uh, Muppet stuff because they were going to buy the Muppets yep. at Disney. So I consulted on some Muppet rides uh, that they were just brainstorming. And then dinosaurs uh, happened with Jim. He's like, I want to do a show about dinosaurs, like a sitcom about dinosaur thinking. And so I had two meetings with him. The first one I did, you know, we met, we just talked about it, brainstormed. I went off, did a bunch of sketches. I had the second meeting with him where I showed the sketches and got his input and we had lunch and he died four days later, which was oh crazy. Yeah. I yeah, met with him on a Friday. Wow. We had the meeting, we had lunch. We just kind of shot the breeze because we were friends at this point, you know, we yeah. just hang out. And he'd ask how things were going in LA and, and whatever. It was just, it was great. I mean, I was spoiled. I, I thought this is what it's like to work with creative people. You know, he was such a unicorn in that way. Anyway, uh, it blew my mind that I, I, I stayed in New York because I was living back in LA. I flew to New York to have these meetings, stayed over the weekend to see friends and just sort of enjoy New York because, you know, I could. And I think flew, I flew home on, sun, on Monday, which was, you know, you leave New York and by the time you get to LA, it's like six at night. So I went right. to bed, came home, went to bed, woke, was awakened at five or six in the morning from a phone call from Kevin Clash saying, um, are, you know, are you, are, did you hear? I said, did I hear what? He said, well, Jim just passed away last night. Oh my God. 
kind of like how what was he in a car accident because i'm like i just saw him like what did he so it was that crazy thing they called galloping pneumonia so um i mean you know the funeral that was horrible and depressing but also amazing just everyone the whole world kind of stopped and you realized what an impact he had not just obviously on me but the entire planet but the nice thing that came out of it was dinosaurs kept going we we sold it to abc yeah i had done so what happened was the uh abc disney uh, the deal wasn't done yet in other words hadn't been thrown out the muppets henson or the henson company disney deal so they said well you know what do you have and they said we've got this dinosaur idea so we met with the people at abc and they brought michael jacobs and bob young in and i just did about seven full color renderings of the family each family member and we pitched it and uh they bought it and then that was the next three years of my life was doing dinosaurs was designing and supervising the build and then being a writer uh on the show writing producer on the show which was great and then muppet treasure island uh which was so dinosaurs was kind of humming along and and they had done christmas carol and they wanted to do a new movie and i i like christmas carol but it was like so sweet and cute and and charming which is what's great about it i said let's go the other direction let's do a big swashbuckling like (laughs) big action thing and i i was pushing for a pirate movie right you know and uh, I said, Treasure Island, you know, we could have Muppet Treasure Island. It's been done a lot, but never with Muppets. And and so I, we had, I remember we we would kind of winnow it down with these group meetings. And it came down to that or uh, Muppet King Arthur. Oh, wow. I said the problem, I mean, my feeling was, you know, I love castles and dragons and all that. I said, if you're going to do King Arthur, it's all about treachery. It's about a best friend betraying his best friend by sleeping with his wife. Right. Like, I mean, you know, the Lancelot story. So you know, you could get rid of that and just have Piggy be Guinevere. But I said, I, you know, then, I mean, it's a weird, it's got a lot of dark stuff. It's got, you know, Morgana, the half sister who was, you know, he's a bastard son and all that. I said, you know, let, let's just do an original, you know, kind of Dungeons and Dragons or Dragons and Knights kind of story. And then I said, or Treasure Island, which is really open-ended. It's just got a bunch of pirates and, a, and it's, it's about a young, you know, boy's adventure. It's not treachery in terms of sleeping with your friend, best friend's wife. Um, and so <laughs> I won, won that. And then Jerry Jewell, who was amazing and a, and a mentor in writing, uh, he, he had been the original head writer on the Muppet. Well, second season, I think Jack Burns was the original head writer and then Jerry took over and Jerry had been with Jim since 1962, I think, since like he just graduated high school. Um, so we wrote the first draft of Muppet Treasure Island, which starts like Treasure Island and ended like a Hope and Crosby picture meets a Ray Harryhausen movie. We had giant, mm-hmm. giant tiki statues coming down the side of a volcano, chasing them to the beach. And and, and that was the joke. It's like, they're like, has anyone read the rest of the book? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, everyone kind of said, yeah, but you really got to keep it more towards the the original story. And I'm like, why? It's been done so many times. Like, you don't go to the Muppets <laughs> to see it you know, a traditional story. And I said, we already did that. You did Christmas Carol, but you know, saner hens of mine prevailed. So we, we cleaved more towards the, uh, the original story. And then they brought in um, another writer who had had worked with uh, Coppola on Dracula and Mm -hmm. Kenneth Branagh on Frankenstein, um, Jim Hart, James V Hart. And he did a draft where he, he basically brought it back to the book and then Jerry and I finished it by making it more Muppety. So that was a great experience as a, you know, my first, co-written movie uh and i i got involved and the muppets is such a small group you get involved as not just the writer and they say goodbye so i was there helping develop visual gags and and i really pushed hard for billy Connolly, for billy bones and, and you know again didn't get a lot of 
pushback. I mean, they're like, yeah, great. If we can get him. And so <laughs> right. I started a friendship with Billy Connolly, which is still going on, which is great. That's so, great. and then Muppets through uh, the nineties, uh, Muppets tonight, uh, helped develop the characters for aliens in the family, which I didn't work on. I just developed the designs. Mm-hmm. And I did Muppets tonight as a producer and started directing second unit on Muppets from space. And then did the three TV movies, um, in the in the two thousands, which was very merry Muppet Christmas, Muppets Wizard of Oz, and Letters to Santa. So that, and I did some, and then I started doing uh, their viral videos, or you know, right. Muppet viral videos, directing those, and then uh, just developing stuff that didn't go anywhere. To well, I did Creature Shop Challenge as a judge, which was great, right. and then uh, the last thing I did that anyone would have seen, well. I guess second to last was Curious Creations of Christine McConnell. Yeah, incredible. Canceled way too early. Yeah, I was very upset, obviously. So was Christine. Luckily, she is Christine McConnell and she owns her name and she's gone on to have an amazing Patreon account where she's making way more money than she was on (laughs) Christine McConnell and has full autonomy. Like she can do whatever she wants. So very happy for her. It stuck for me because I actually, if if it had been a network show, I would have gotten created by credit as I Mm -hmm. directed all the episodes, created the pilot and then wrote two-thirds of them i wrote uh, four of the six but because it was a non-union thing i got just credit as an executive producer with like four other people right but which is fine i i think in the future i won't do that because <laughs> it, i don't know if it helped my career everyone thought christine created it and direct you know right um, and i created it with her but the characters and the designs yeah. came came from me and the stories and then my my other writer i don't know if she wants her name known so i won't say it but she was right. great she's a professional she's a, a well-known sitcom writer uh, she was great and came in as almost a favor because this thing was done for very low budget, but it was such a great, it was such a labor of love for everybody. Cause we all love Christine and her work. And I love that world. I'd always wanted to do a, a dark, you know, I tried to develop a uncle deadly series, you know, 20 years earlier right. in that kind of world, kind of dark comedy, Adam's family ish. And so this gave me a chance to kind of, you know, play in that realm. And Christine was all on board. Uh, and then the last thing was Muppets Now, which I just directed. Right. Uh, I think I directed half of them. Now we did that last year and it came out this last summer. And I'm all, you know, aside from all that, I'm always developing stuff. I've got, you know, a couple irons in the fire uh, here and there, always pitching. Yeah. I sold a series to Jeff Bezos last year and then COVID happened and all went, it's not dead. It just, I can't really talk about it, but right. it stopped. But uh, yeah, I, I sold a very cool idea. I, I sold it was his idea that I turned into a series and then he was like yeah let's do it and then the world went to hell right so uh, yeah it's been a frustrating year because it was going to be this banner year for me with Muppet right. products and and then it's been um you know podcasts is what I'm doing <laughs> <laughs> yeah you went from Bezos to me so uh, yeah yeah you know, well you know, it's, I, it's different he doesn't have a podcast so right it, not yet yeah apples gonna... and donuts no, I, look, Star Wars was great to me, and I'm still friends with Star Wars people, and I love the uh, the scope of the franchise. I think uh, it's really fun. So I, I love that universe, and, the, and and even the Star Trek universe has exploded. Uh, I just the Muppet one is is frustrating because they don't. I don't know what the problem is. I, I mean, I th- my, this is my two cents. Not that anyone asked, but they don't have a John Lasseter. They don't have a Brian Henson. They don't have a Muppet. They don't have a Frank Oz. They don't have me. They don't have someone there who's like the Muppet Maven who says, "This is what we're going to do," and everyone right. gets behind it. It's always, it's sort of by committee or by whim. You know, Jason Siegel. Oh, I want to. I wrote a Muppet movie. And they're like, "Oh, you're Jason Siegel," right? And 
you're like, yeah, but he wrote a fan film that he stars in. And, and, but so it, they've been a little bit of a creature without a head. Right. And again, the people who are the day-to-day people at Disney are great. Um, I just think, you know, it ends up all being by committee, which is mm-hmm. frustrating. I, I, man, it's frustrating in contrast to having Jim Henson, you know, or George yeah. Lucas or a, or a, a Steven, I mean, a Spielberg or a, a Leonard Nimoy, where there's sort of an 800-pound gorilla who is keeping the flame alive and, and growing it, right. you know, uh, the the flame at Muppets really is the performers. They they're the core that everyone, you know, well has to listen to in in some way. But uh, the smart people want to listen to them. So, uh, and that's been a nice development with the Muppet process. Is we now, as writers, at, at least the stuff that I work on, we we involve the puppeteers early on, not just mm-hmm. here's the script, you know, say your lines, dummy. Uh, which which is how Hollywood sort of treats actors unless it's a big franchise, you know, I mean, Johnny Depp got a lot of input on, on Jack Sparrow. When Disney first bought the Muppets, they thought, Oh, you guys just wiggle the dolls. Right. I mean, they didn't even know they did the voices. They're like, well, who does the voice? And like, No, they, they do everything. They're the performers. It's like right. Mike Myers is Austin Powers. You don't go, okay, we bought Austin Powers. Let's uh, let's get Jim Carrey to play Austin Powers. Right, right. Um, so the, the, the way it is now is the performers kind of have, are the keeper of the flame, but they sadly don't get, you know, they're still considered performers. And I don't mean that, that they're treated poorly, but they don't have the clout of a John, you know, cause <laughs> right. it's funny. The guy who does Kermit, like everyone loves Kermit, but the guy who does him doesn't, you know, what used to be Jim Henson, uh, Matt Vogel does a great job, but he doesn't have any say, you know, it's right. just sort of like what we're doing. He has say on the day to day, like I, I, you know, I'd like to do this or maybe Kermit would do that, but it, it's, it's, uh, so that's been frustrating again, because I was spoiled by working, especially the first 10 years with George and, and Leonard and Jim. And then even right. Brian Henson was great. He, he had his uh, aesthetic and taste and, and you could a lot, you know, you align yourself with it or you, you know, you'd, you'd have something to bounce off of. Or now it's sort of like, well, here's an idea. Let's see if everybody likes it. And, and, you know, what marketing says. So that, that's been frustrating, but still yeah. it looked, it's a great business and the Muppets, and Henson. Now I have two companies. I have the Henson Company, which I've done stuff with, like Christine McConnell, right. and uh, and then the Muppets at Disney, which are great too. And that they uh, they're trying to grow. The, they're now under Imagineering. It's changed hands, I think, five times in the mm-hmm. last fifteen years. And the Imagineering people are great. Uh, the the two people we deal with directly, one's Australian and one's British, and they both love the Muppets. I think those cultures, for some reason the Muppets were way more beloved than they were in America. Not that they are despised here, but right. England, if you say you work in the Muppets, you get way more like <laughs> eyebrow raised or Australia or even Canada than in the U S I think in the U S it's like, Oh, Sesame street. Right. You know, yeah. where, where in, in the other English speaking countries in the world, they're like, Oh my God, the Muppets, that, it's like Monty Python there, which is how I always viewed them, which I don't, which is why when I write for the Muppets, it's borderlines insanity and silliness not let all learn a valuable lesson about friendship. I think that's great for Sesame street and, and all these other shows. And, the, and there's a new show on Apple called right. helpsters, I think, um, which is, you know, it's great. That's where puppets are great too. But I, I sort of tend to think of them more like, again, like Python or the Simpsons or something where you can do adult stories, not adult with a capital a or an implied triple X, mm-hmm. but just like the Simpsons or family guy or, or, you know, <laughs> South park, uh, and, and, and I think, again, those shows all have an edge and Simpsons probably less, but South Park and, and Family Guy definitely have an edge to them that I know a lot of Muppet fans find distasteful, 
and so it's somewhere between what the Muppets were on the Muppet show and, and those where I, is, I think their sweet spot, yeah. but I, I get voted down a lot as the crazy guy who, you know, <laughs> We, he's kind of the the solid family guy who goes to church and I'm the kind of the crazy guy who, uh, you know, goes to Burning Man and uh-huh. <laughs> that kind of thing. Anyway, there you go. That was my career in 28 minutes. <laughs> no, it's perfect. Look at that. I don't, I don't have to edit anything. I can just, I, again, this is a Star Wars podcast, but I love, I mean, the Muppets are like, I love the Muppets so much. And even like I, Muppet Treasure Island was the first movie I saw in the movie theater, uh, not to date you, right? Not to make you feel. Oh, well, look, nobody's dating me right now. So, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, but, but this is a very interesting kind of topic where, you know, you see it with star Wars and you have kind of the Filoni Favreau overseeing part of a, of a franchise. And really the Muppets have, even when you were talking about when, when Disney didn't get a Muppet land back in 1990 right. or whatever it was right. from then on, it's really been, kind of rudderless almost and there's been very very huge peaks um with it being successful and me like most people would love to see kind of the muppets return to form almost and muppets now is a great example of that even in a small scale where it felt so timely and i mean when i saw it it was like oh did they make this during because zoom kind of based and you know right. it felt yeah it was it was shot the year before covid but it was re-edited <laughs> and and they added the zoom stuff for COVID. Mm-hmm. But I mean, uh, the last things I worked on as a writer for the Muppets that I can talk about was yeah. uh, uh, the Hollywood Bowl and the London shows. And the critics were like, oh my God, this is the, why is this not on the air? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what I thought is like, this is the Muppets. We're silly. We're sweet. We've got, you know, Bobby Moynihan was an amazing guest. He's an SNL guy. Like that to me right. is our, is our uh, a sweet spot. Um, you know, and, and the SNL guys do Muppet gags all the time. They're all fans. So why aren't we pushing that as opposed to, and again, Disney is very concerned about anyone being offended and anyone. So I, I think that's part of it. But like you said, there's no Dave Filoni. There's no John Favreau mm-hmm. who's come in. I mean, Jason Siegel tried. Um, I mean, Jason Siegel did it. Uh, what's mm-hmm. his name? Josh Gad had an idea and he developed it with two writers from once. And then uh, they sadly didn't involve the Muppets at all. So then they, they pitched to the Muppets and they kind of went, well, this is interesting, but we don't, this isn't really what we, what we want to do or how. Oh, it doesn't really... yeah. Well, it was kind of Jason Segel all over again. And it was like, oh, look, I wrote a thing that I star in and the Muppets are my guests, my, you know, right. kind of my Greek chorus. And that's not the way to develop a Muppet thing in my mind. I mean, I get why they did that because they're like, well, I've got star power and, and that's the problem. There's no star power. The Muppets themselves are not considered star power, which is amazing because they're one of the most recognized brands mm-hmm. just under mm-hmm. Mickey Mouse uh, around the world. But they, they aren't really leveraging a Muppet thing as having it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more they you know keep it safe and don't have it driven from the inside out, it's more like, well, who wants to work with the Muppets? Uh, the more watered down and sort of safe it gets, the fewer fans you develop. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, we're talking about puppetry in particular and, and Star Wars to get back to your topic. <laughs> uh, Jedi, I gave a talk at uh, with Wendy Froud at yeah. uh, the, was it the Brooklyn Academy of Music? Is that it, BAM? Uh, yeah. Um, and it was, we screened Jedi and we gave a talk afterwards and, and watching it, I was like, you realize it's a puppet movie. Yep. Most of the creatures in it are either costumes or puppets. Jabba's a huge puppet. The Rancor is a puppet. Um, the uh, Salacious is a puppet. It's it's 
Niam Nub, which a lot of people don't know, was a puppet. Yep. He was a guy in a suit for walking shots, but when he's in the co-piloting uh, co with Lando, he's a puppet. Exactly. <laughs> Akbar, a puppet. So it, it's really a puppet movie. And uh, that's one of my frustrations in my career is people are like, oh, you're a puppet director. It's like, no, I'm a comedy effects director. Like, you know, if, <laughs> if you replace the Muppets with Star Wars characters, suddenly like, oh, you know, you can do Marvel movies or Star Wars movies. But mm -hmm as they're felt in ping pong balls and they're funny. It's, it's, you're relegated to, Oh, it's kid show stuff. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that's something that star Wars is not missing. I think missing is the wrong word. There was a way to bring some sort of wackiness to a star Wars. I don't think it needs to be Mandalorian or something, but like, there's so many things being developed. A wacky star Wars would be interesting. It's funny. I pitched that, uh, when I knew people at Lucasfilm, this was maybe 10 years ago right before uh kathy took over george sold it right. and, and and i pitched it again in fact we did we shot two pigs in space star wars not specials but star wars episodes like you know eight uh -huh. episodes and we and they were timed to release with the force awakens with like star wars is back and and we had mark hamill on board was going to do one and lucasfilm killed it even though we oh. well we we lucasfilm killed it and we shot them anyway, <laughs> saying, well, we'll release them. We'll release them out. They, and their reasoning was, because I talked to, to Howard Rothman, who at the time was running it. He said, right. we don't want kids to think Star Wars is funny or, or to be made fun of. I'm like, did you, have you seen any of the Family Guy stuff? He goes, yeah, that's, that's in the past. We, we're changing that. We don't want humor and, and parody. We don't want to be parodied, which I'm told now is changing. Uh, I guess there's some project in development i don't know and i know they released star wars comedy thing uh the detours yeah, uh, yeah. episode that leaked a couple, yeah. couple days ago yeah, yeah yeah so that's come out but uh, you know i one of the things i loved about star wars and and lucasfilm projects in general indiana jones too that is there was a humor about it that wasn't comedy jokes but it was the characters and the situations were funny, you know, yeah. whether it's, uh, you know, it do Judah or snakes. Why do it have to be snakes? There was a, right. a humanity to it, which is it's everything. You run the gamut from really hardcore serious to, you know, family betrayal to like, Oh my God, that's hilarious. You watch, like I was able to see empire on a big screen yeah. relatively recently. And it's funny. <laughs> you like, you know, yeah. like you forget C3PO is like very funny and people are laughing Right. And like you, when you watch it alone, when you watch it, you know, kind of in the background on Disney Plus, you're like, oh yeah, it's Star Wars. I've seen this a hundred times. But but that communal experience of watching Star Wars is something that I feel like, and I'm hoping, like you described, eight years ago when they were like, hey, we're introducing Star Wars again to a whole new generation. Maybe let's not make it funny initially the first time they see Darth Vader. But now that it's over, now that the the sequel trilogy is over, I I hope there's an opportunity to expand it and to make it you know, part of a larger, I mean, yeah. Marvel's doing that. I mean, if you look at, right. um, what is it? Scarlet Witch and, and uh, Vision. That's a weird comedy. It's really goofy and, and funny and parodies sitcoms. And I'm like, that's, and you know, I, I would love to do a Howard the Duck movie. Uh, oh my God. Kevin, yep. Kevin Smith was going to do an animated version. And, um, you know, I keep bothering the Marvel guys because I know <laughs> Kevin and, and, and some of the producers there. Um, my pitch is a Muppet Marvel mashup, which I think I'm just going to write the outline and then see if <laughs> um, I have a specific idea and characters that would work. Uh, but I mean, I, that's, you know, that's the fun about 
the Muppets is they kind of can mold into any, you know, like we did with Christmas Carol and, and uh, right. Treasure Island. I wrote a Muppet sci-fi parody, Jesus, 22 years ago, and then like 96, 97, 98, uh, called Muppets, Muppets in Space. No, yeah, Muppets in Space. And uh, it parodied Star, Star Wars and Star Trek, you know, down to specific lines and Easter eggs. And uh, the, it was right. So Disney was going to do it. Uh, and then Sony bought the rights or Sony did a deal with Henson. And so they decided to do Jerry Jewel script, which was originally called Star Gonzo's, but it came up. It's from space. Um, and so that 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 was the beginning of my <laughs> my frustration. It was like, yeah, uh, you know, it was like, oh, my God, I got a movie that I wrote on my own. It was greenlit. And then it, not. No. Uh, right. So, yeah, it's funny. It's uh, but but the Star Wars universe, I agree, such a deep universe. It's it's you know like world of warcraft it's just it's got so many worlds and 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 mandalorian's great and it's it, it's exposing a lot of that i, I would love to do a uh, you know a star wars series that's just creatures there's like no humans involved oh you're speaking my language because i mean i mean going back to the creature shop and going back to that first experience that you had yeah. with star wars that's something that I, I constantly gravitate back to and you can look at the people that I've interviewed. It's every single person that has worked in that creature shop because that's just something, even even at its base level, right, with, with what Rick Baker started and Stuart yeah. Freeborn started, yeah. with making something that was so iconic and so instantly like, oh, that person has a story. That person right. has something behind it right. um, that was first started in, in Star Wars and then kind of carried on in Return of the Jedi especially. Um, that that there's so much to mine there, and and that's one thing that I love about Mando is these kind of things. Like, oh, here is a Mon Calamari in a sweater, you know, or here's here's them right. eating chowder, you know, like those kind of things. Like, I'm like, yes, more weird Star Wars makes makes good Star Wars. So. I, I was I gained a lot of popularity in high school by able to by being able to speak Rodian as Greedo. I was like. <laughs> 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 and i would love i've always wanted to do because i just love their dumb little mouths to do like even if it's a short like a rodian sitcom like you know husband and wife and uh you know because they've had rodian kids and stuff but that to me is is the unexplored and again i'm the weird wacky guy who likes that kind of nuttiness but mm. it is a big enough tent that you could do that. Well, to be said, we could talk about this for for hours. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have. I, I, I you know, <laughs> no, I've loved it. I've, this is going to yeah, be revelatory. Great. I'm kind of a nerd about this. Stuff. <laughs> you like it a little bit. That's I great. I do. Um, yeah. What's yeah. funny is most people who work in it now. I mean, somebody was arguing that Mandalorian is just fans, fanboys, and I said everyone's a fanboy of Star Wars now. We all grew up with it. Like, there's no one working on it. It was like oh, I hated it. I never watched it. <laughs> It's right. all fan service. Same thing with Star Trek, you know, so to level that at it, I know what they're saying. The Muppets, to some degree, that's kind of, again, what I thought was with Jason Siegel and the uh, and the Josh Gad project that never saw the light of day. But that was fanboys writing themselves into the show, which, but again, it, it's hard to criticize them. I, you know, I'd like to stick myself in a Star Wars movie or a Star Trek movie. I did get stuck in a Marvel movie, which was... Yes, you did. Reprising your Star Trek role. I know. That was all... Because Kevin Feige's a huge Star Trek fan and he loved my cameo, so he gets all that credit. Yeah. (laughs) Good time. I would love to talk, because we've talked enough about a Jedi, especially, and and that that period that you were discussing a little bit, you know, working more with Phil Tippett and kind of, again, the growth of practical effects during that time, whether it was RoboCop 2 or Gremlins, 
what was that period like for you and kind of growing with the effects world as that was happening? Getting hired on Jedi at 18 or 19 was kind of opened a door for me to work on all those other projects because it was a great resume piece. It was amazing. I mean, going from Gremlins 1 and then working, I puppeteered and did voices on Gremlins 2, which I thought was, I didn't realize it was literally six years later. No, five years later when Rick Baker did it, Rick called me up and said, hey, do you want to do some group? I, I didn't do any building or designing. I just did puppeteering and group scenes and then did a bunch of voices for it. Um, mm -hmm. But the technology from, I mean, Gremlins 1, we did with literally crazy glue, popsicle sticks and latex. I mean, uh, you know, rubber bands and and it was very simple, except for a few gags. They were very basic puppets, you know, latex puppets, not very different from a Muppet, except latex instead of felt and glass eyes or, you know, plastic realistic eyes instead of uh, ping pong balls. Um, by the time Gremlins 2 was happening and, and Rick had, you know, 10 times the budget we did, uh, they had computer animated, um, I mean, computer controlled audio animatronic, the brain gremlin was right. completely live and amazing, <laughs> an amazing mechanical guy, Mark Satrakian, who uh, is probably the best, if not the top three mechanical engineers for creature stuff in the business, um, made this fully automated gremlin robot, the size of a gremlin. He didn't have to be human size. You know, it wasn't like we scaled him up and uh, he could run entire runs of dialogue. They record the dialogue and, and it was basically an audio animatronic figure. Um, and that was in five years. You know, and again, budget helped because they were, they had a lot bigger budget, and 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 you know, Rick Baker had this full on crew where Chris threw this crew together because he didn't have a big shop, you know, before where mm -hmm. we had a, a pretty good sized shop for 10, 12 years at that point. So it was always exciting. The, the short version is it was always exciting because somebody was breaking new ground, new materials, silicones were coming out. You know, we started that the technology hadn't changed much since Planet of the Apes. It was foam latex baked in a stone mold, a uh, you know plaster or. Uh, uh, some kind of plaster mold, a high-end plaster. And, uh, you know, during the 80s, epoxies were, were being experimented. Urethanes became more than just a foam filler. Uh, silicones started, came out and, and got really amazing uh, up into the, in the 90s and beyond. Now it's fairly standard to have uh, encapsulated silicone prosthetics and, and creature skins. Um, and the robotics thing, right? I said, right when practical effects got to the point like Gremlin's Two and you know the Ninja Turtle stuff and dinosaurs came out and we were doing you know full real time animated creatures that in the room you could touch. CG hit its started its peak with with Jurassic Park, um, and you know like it or hate it, it it started taking over because you could do anything. I mean you could do a lot with practical, but you're still like I've always said you're always fighting physics. Uh, with CG, you're just fighting rendering time and, you know, the, the amount of detail your your models will carry. Um, you Then you're fighting the look of reality. You know, mm -hmm. that's the hard thing that CG fights is it looks too easy or it looks too good or too perfect. So it, it's funny. Uh, you, it's really easy to dirty down a creature sitting in front of you. It's a lot of work to make, you know, the, the creature's skin look shiny where it's supposed to be shiny and dirty where it's supposed to be dirty in CG. Um, so it was interesting. Uh and I think that's true. If you look through history, the peak of any one skill usually happens right when it's being overtaken by the next thing. I always, mm. I, I always relate it to stone carving. The guys who were carving cathedrals and, and by the late 1800s, early 1900s with Art Nouveau, they were carving these amazing, uh, you know, out of wood and, and stone and just 
things that didn't look like they were made out of wood and stone because the, the carving skills had gotten so perfect. And then machine machines took over in terms of mass producing things and, and making things, uh, you know, uh, that typically didn't look like they could have been carved with a hammer and a chisel. And now we see the same thing now with 3D printing, right? When mold making and all that got incredibly sophisticated and injection molding and guys, some of my friends who are still creature mold, you know, guys, they can do these 12 part molds and there's plugs and things, you know, it's amazing. And now you can 3D print it. <laughs> and they're starting to 3D print makeup. You know, you sculpt it mm -hmm. in ZBrush or in, in, on the computer and then 3D print it and you then 3D scan LifeCast. You don't have to put someone under Alginet. And so, again, once that's, you know, once Rick Baker took physical makeup effects to basically the Nadir, about as good as they can get, then CG is taking over. Uh, and I don't mean doing it better. I just mean making it easier. So that, I mean, that's the trajectory of my career from, you know, 1980 to now is, is watching technologies get perfected and then supplanted by right these days computers because they can just do so much and they're getting faster and cheaper i mean you know what i can do on my mac with 500 software ilm couldn't do 30 years ago it's kind of amazing it, it we haven't seen that in any other industry it's not like it, <laughs> that'd be like if the wright brothers you know flew the what it was it 1906 at kitty hawk and by 19 36 they're you know supersonic jets i mean it, it it it's such a and again that's all the computer moore's law but it really is revolutionizing things so i think that's the biggest thing is that in in my career we saw a computer sort of start as a you know a pc in your in your room and, and giant you know in your house and uh supercomputers doing scenes for uh, movies to basically a bunch of off-the-shelf you know ten thousand dollar PCs, you know, you can buy it at Best Buy if you want. The thing that's the biggest difference, you know, back then it was a, what, what new flexible material can we buy and mix up and how do you paint it? Now it's like, then the software every year, you know, gets faster and cheaper. And what you can do in, like I said, what you can do in After Effects now, ILM wasn't able to do 30 years, maybe 20 years ago. So, I mean, you even see it right now, just to close it out and hopefully tie it thematically a little bit but you see it with the mandalorian uh, yeah all exactly. these all these people are working at their houses right now making this new season right that's what they just did so and it doesn't look fake the quality of mandalorian particularly for television is astounding i mean all the stuff i see with the creatures it just you never go oh that looks super fakey it, it looks right. really i mean and i have you know i watch it in high def on a on a, a good size screen so um, you know, there's shots in, in Empire and Jedi even that you're like, now, <laughs> you know, and, and it's just amazing. And, and George Lucas gets all the credit for that, or most of it. He's the one who said, I'm going to invest in a special effects facility you know, and I'm going to push them. Like, he's the one who's like, yes, computers. Yeah. I mean, George, for all the criticisms about, you know, the, the prequels and stuff, he created the modern blockbuster and not just in yep. terms of of story and, and, and content, but the visuals, you know, he hired Phil Tippett and said, no, I want better creatures. I want more creatures. I don't, you know, and then CG started picking up and he pushed that. And again, the first steps might've been missteps or, or not, you know, beautifully done, but now look what we have, you know, you've got stuff yeah. on Mandalorian, which you look at, you're like, I looks like a giant woolly rhino is there <laughs> floating in, <laughs> in space. It does not look like it doesn't look stop motion. -y. It doesn't look CG. -y it looks like it's really there. And, and that, uh, you know, the, the, the dragon, whatever they call the sand dragon on Tatooine was amazing. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and now we, that's the other thing is you just come to expect it. Like, Oh yeah, let's go. Cool. 
<laughs> years ago, people have been screaming out like, oh my God, that's amazing. You know, just like they did with Jurassic right. Park. And, uh, you know, it, again, bringing it back to, to Star Wars, George Lucas gets, I'd say, 85% of the credit for that because he realized to push the medium and you have to create new tools and you have to have creative people who, you know, dig this stuff. You didn't mm-hmm. just hire engineers. He hired filming Chris Whalas, uh, Ken Ralston, Dennis Murin, Phil Tippett. They were effects guys, but they were filmmakers. They loved movies. You know, right. they they were trying to do cool stuff, not just get a paycheck. You know, and and that's why ILM back in the day and still is now. It's an amazing group of creative individuals who are filmmakers who are just doing, you know, one thing, but they think eat drink sleep movies and don't just go well it's a I mean, i'm sure there's people who specialize in just like what's a good rendering technique but but it's mm-hmm. driven by filmmakers and i think again george gets so much credit for that for making the industry and and the quality of effects where they are now i love it well uh go. mr thatcher thank you for i'm about to like run through a brick wall now i was like trying to <laughs> ease off my work day. I was like, oh, like, nice. This will be a good interview. And I'm just like ready to sprint around. So thank you for coming on and, and being great. And hey, if anyone wants, I do sign autographs. I do have a website, this is my plug, because, you know, I haven't made a lot of money this year. So if anyone wants for Christmas, a, uh, it's www.kirkrthatcher.com. And uh, I have a bunch of pictures of me working on Jedi uh, that I will sign and personalize and mail back to you or mail to you. Look at that. Um, and I'll put the, the link in the show notes. It'll be oh, easy. People thanks, can just man. click right there. It'll be perfect. Yeah. Um, and I also do, actually, I just did some original Rancor drawings for somebody. He kind of flipped out over them, which made me happy. So I typically just shit. do stuff I've worked on. I mean, I, you know, I could draw a right, right, right. but I don't. It, so if you have things from Jedi or do originals, then I also sign uh, pictures. So there. Well, look at that. Okay. Well, shit. I'm about to go order some too. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Uh, we'll talk soon, but hang in there and, and stay safe. Oh, thanks, buddy. All right. Thanks. Thanks, man. This was fun. All right. Again, just a huge thank you to Mr. Thatcher for coming on the show and for sharing his perspective and incredible stories. As mentioned, head to his website, KirkRThatcher.com, for autographs and sketches of your favorite characters. If, right now, you could go to where you're listening to this podcast and leave a five-star rating and review, it is so appreciated. And this Friday, we'll be back on Scener one last time, doing a live rewatch of The Mandalorian finale at 7.30pm Central, with some really special guests. Until next week's episode, which is episode 94, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.